Well, I like to give credit where credit is due, and uh, about a year ago or so, I read a book called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It by somebody by the name of A.J. Swoboda, and I'd highly recommend uh, this book as it relates to uh, having doubt in faith and how to journey through a season of doubt in faith, and as the subtitle of the book says, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. But I want to give credit to where credit is due because some of the concepts and ideas that I'm going to share with you this morning connected to this message uh, I got from his book, After Faith. And so again, would highly recommend uh, his book and I'd encourage it uh, to you. When uh, Andre and I first started dating, I remember thinking it would have been so helpful if someone were to have written a book called Andrea 101. Now, you maybe are smirking or going, oh, interesting. For me, I wanted Andrea 101 so I could know everything that there was to know about Andrea so that then I could adjust how I was living, treating her, thinking about her, so that I would know rightly about her so that I could live in a healthier relationship with her. Now, this doesn't have to be an intimate uh, marriage relationship, engagement, dating relationship. So you can think about a person close with, especially as you start off in relationship with that person, how valuable it would be to have, you know, blank 101, the person's name, fill it in 101, to have an understanding of who they are. Because what we believe about a person changes and affects how we therefore live in relationship with them. Yet what we also come to understand is that we can believe rightly about another person, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is ultimately going to be healthy. Uh, For example, you know, you could know all the right things about your spouse, but there could be a lack of overall love, faith, and surrender. The The romance could be gone. And so oftentimes you'll hear about people talking about this in the nature of uh, intimate relationships or in friendships that, yes, we know a lot about each other, but the romance is kind of gone or the intimacy that we once felt or the surrender that we both had for one another is no longer there. Yes, we know a lot about each other, but it hasn't led to ultimate faith and surrender. And it's to healthy relationships. And the same is to be said about our relationship with God. Uh, You can look with me at Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 14. This is what the Apostle Paul, then in writing to the Ephesian church, is getting at as it relates to our relationship with God and the formation and health of a local church. He writes this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the to equip the the work of ministry for building Christ Notice what he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, so that's one thing, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to measure of the, of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. Notice the goals of what he lists, unity of the faith and then also knowledge of the Son of God. What he's speaking to is cultivating right belief, knowledge of the Son of God, but then it must also be faith. Another way of illustrating this, if you go to the Gospels, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you compare when Jesus or when there's a group that always know who Jesus is. And then they're, they're up against another group who fails to understand who Jesus is. This isn't to be a trick question. Once I tell you, you'll be like, what is he getting at? The demons. 
Now, have you ever noticed in the Gospels that the demons always seem to know exactly who Jesus is? And then it's pitted up against individuals, humans, that are struggling to know who Jesus is. Yet what's the issue with the demon? Who Jesus is, but yet they do not have faith and surrender. As the bride living in relationship with our groom, it matters what we believe about our groom. And you can follow that analogy and that illustration further, if you would like, about why it's important to believe rightly about the person you are in relationship with. So here's the first question I want to answer for ourselves. You know, there are thousands of denominations out there. There are quite a number of things that have the label Christian on them. But what beliefs are necessary for someone to be considered a Christian or to be considered orthodox, right thinking? Now, to answer that question, I believe we don't have to go very far. We can look into the history of the church, and we come to two things known as the Apostles' Creed and also the Nicene Creed. Now, these creeds were developed by the early church in the fourth century, so a long time ago. And they, what they did was they were written to serve as statements that articulated what the first Christians believed, what the first followers of Jesus believed about him. And so they are, in some sense, the founding documents to the Christian movement. And they came out of a desire for clarification around right and wrong beliefs, something that I'm sure you and I can resonate with in our time and in our day and age. Now, the Apostles' Creed is interesting in that it means to be followers of Jesus. This is what the Christian movement believes. So what I'm first going to do is read us the Apostles' Creed, this I believe confessional statement, and then what we're going to do collectively is read the Nicene Creed together. Here's what we read in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe You are maybe thinking, what is the whole church that has followed Jesus throughout history? So think about the significance of that being included in this confessional statement. I affirm the church. I affirm the global church as the bride of Christ. We then have the Nicene Creed. And so would you join me in reading this fourth century confessional statement that believers through the years have been reading and saying together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. All things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit Mary. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose. He the hand of the Father. He will come glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Thank you. Isn't it amazing that these are the statements, these are the things that as followers of Jesus, we affirm as orthodox, true, historic Christian teaching. With that, I want to hone in a little bit more. As we're in this series on the church, I want to hone in a little bit on our church specifically. And what you can do is on our about page on our website, guelph.churchofthecity.ca backslash about, you will read and you will see there that we as a local church affirm the apostles and the Nicene Creed. We also have there a link to something known as the Lucan Covenant. The Lucan Covenant is another doctrinal or statement of faith that has an evangelistic edge to it. It's just a beautiful reworking and rewriting of a lot of these things, again, with that more missional edge to it. We also exist as part of a denomination, which also has a statement of faith. And so we affirm, obviously, that statement of faith. But then to keep things really simple on our website, we also have these 10 statements, these 10 convictions that we believe are primary of saying, this is what we believe is the foundation by which the things that we as a church believe as we live and exist in relationship with Jesus as his bride. I'm not going to go through all of those. I'm simply going to read one of them. And that we believe the Bible to be the inspired word of God and that it is our standard for faith and for conduct. Now, I know uh, someone and he'll often say, okay, that's great that you have good orthodoxy or right thinking, but work out understand our story as people and then what relationship with God and with others is to look like are known as secondary doctrines. And as a local church, we have then an understanding and interpretation of secondary issues. And what these doctrinal positions mean is oftentimes they decide what part of denomination you're going to be part of or tribe or other group of people. And then within the context of our church, our desire is then that our elders and our staff would have a shared understanding of these secondary issues, and then as members that there would be a submission to them. One of those, for example, is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Now this is, could pull a lot out of here, prophecy, healing, and tongues. 
which we as a local church still believe are available to the church in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, and therefore should be pursued by the local church for its upbuilding. And this position in theological terms is known as continuationism versus cessationism. There's then another group dying over. And within Church of the City and as our elders, we do not expect to have full agreement on some of these points. Some of these, for example, are positions on the end times uh, in super theological terms. You may have heard of amillennialism, postmillennialism, premillennialism. We believe these once again are to, for us to discuss and to think about. Another position should be violence versus nonviolence. None of us are obviously waving, let's get violent flags. But what we mean by that is what the position of followers of Jesus is as it relates to violence in the world. And then also around abstinence or moderation with alcohol. Now you may be saying, why in the world are you getting into these sorts of things? Because what did I say in the very beginning? I would love to also have those conversations with you. The next in A.J. Swoboda's book was this sort of three stages as it relates to developing belief about God, believing, having beliefs then formed about ourself. In the first stage, he calls it theological construction. Theological construction. He says this is the, the season of your life where maybe it happens in your home, your upbringing, where your parents teach you about faith. They teach you about who Jesus is. And in this stage, you know, there's not a lot times this is throughout hearing these and you're like amazing soaking all up certainly there is a welcomeness in this stage that is so critical and important. and you're a kid and you're hearing all of these things kids need to of reevaluating what we initially were handed. Oftentimes when we face some sort of life experience crisis or even transition when something that we believed early on, you begin to see some cracks in it. And so you begin to ask further questions. You know, just speaking strictly to statistics, tragically, about 60% of kids that are raised in the church, as they go off to university and college, come to a place where they decide, I'm going to go a different direction. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. Now, you could also look at the statistics of the numbers that come back, oftentimes following another transition or uh, crisis or something in their life, like having a child is oftentimes a time where someone reconsiders faith again. But this is that season where you begin to say, okay, this is what I was taught, but is this what I believe? And I certainly remember that season for myself where I needed to take this faith that I was given by my parents and I needed to say, do I believe it? Swoboda writes this in his book and he describes the difference between two types of deconstruction. He says this, deconstruction is a double-edged sword. It can edify our faith by helping us critically rethink wrong beliefs, but it can also go too far and bring our faith to nothing. 
Any belief that we uncritically received at some point that remains hostile or opposed to the biblical message of Jesus Christ needs to be deconstructed. But the minute deconstruction undermines the gospel, our faith, or the Bible, we've deconstructed too much. There's a world of difference between deconstructing wrong beliefs and deconstructing the faith, just as there's a difference between remodeling a room in our home and tearing down the house. Distinguishing between the two is essential. One is intellectual repentance and the other faith abandonment. One is healthy deconstruction, the other is faith destruction. In fact, a true living faith will often require us to undertake some type of deconstruction of our beliefs. We're certainly opposed to the teachings of Jesus. And so we want to obviously say, well, we can't just hold that up. We need to think about how we actually apply it. And then thirdly, Swoboda talks about theological then reconstruction. And this is then following, having asked, challenged, and prodded, we return a second time to the same faith that we were handed. And oftentimes in this reconstruction, our faith is then strengthened because we've gone through the stages of having it questioned. It's gone through the fire. It's come out the other side. And we fall in love again with Jesus. I think of 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, where Paul writes to the Corinthian church, we destroy. Sisters, there's some bad ideas out there. Every single generation has had to deal with the fact that there are lies. And we now live in a time where lies are. church, some thinking for the bigger church. First is this practical consideration. I believe that the church has, has the opportunity to be a place where theological construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction can happen. It has to be a place where each of these stages can happen and fostered and where people come alongside other people I think of construction. I think about all the incredible work that is being done in our kids' ministry. I think about the catechesis classes that, that happened around the Apostles' Creed and even thinking through what would that look like for our own kids and our own kids' ministry. As parents, we have to think through what would it look like for me to really instill, you know, so parenting now is kind of responding to the way you and kind of going, uh, it felt kind of legalistic, so I'm just not going to talk to them about Jesus because that's maybe a little bit better. Or my parents made me go to church, so I'm never going to make my kids go to church. Brothers and sisters, if you don't think church is important and meaningful and necessary, your kids certainly will not. It matters. We're to instill the things that are valued, the things that are important. We cannot just go, well, you know, they'll kind of just get discipled. If you do not disciple them, media will, their friends will, Rihanna will. It's our responsibility to disciple, train, to equip, to raise up our children. And then they will make their own decision about who they want to follow. But certainly it's our responsibility as parents. If you don't disciple them, someone else will. 
You know, there's two factors that help someone remain a lifelong follower of Jesus disproportionately to other things. The first is parents who walk through their own faith challenges and remain faithful to God through the difficulties. Parents, do not underestimate your challenges, your circumstances, your difficulty in raising your children up. Be vulnerable. Be honest with them. And then a second factor that, again, disproportionate to other things, is that an individual, as they grow, has no less, get this, no less than five adult Christians who love them, care, and instill a commitment to Jesus in them. Five So on a day when we are celebrating mothers, we applaud mothers, we celebrate mothers. Mothers, you are not enough. We also need other adults to step into our kids' lives and love them and care for them. And this is why we're so for missional communities, because it immediately puts other adults into our children's lives to love and to care for them and show them what it means to follow Jesus. The church must also be a place, though, where some deconstruction can happen. While remaining faithful, the church can be a place where ask their questions them. For those who are in deconstruction, you need the people of God around you to influence you by having the faith that you may actually not have presently. You need others around you that can support and encourage you who may have the faith that you do not have presently. But then also, uh, that third stage of reconstruction, we are all, you know, we're all reconstructing in some community together, living out our convictions in healthy ways in the midst of our time and culture. Secondly, I fully believe that denominations can be healthy environments for submission to a broader movement. I believe that as long as denominations do not, you know, become insular and us-focused, there is incredible value in being part of a wider church body. There has been a movement of independent churches disconnected from wider bodies of submission. And I think it's so important to remain committed and in submission to a wider body of more followers of Jesus that are all There is nuance here. Christ does not return, and so we continue to cling to the cross. And then our limitations as individuals of of having every little thing figured out. We have to remember that we also live in a certain time and place within church history. I think some of us would just be shocked to know some of the beliefs of past Christians given their time and place. And this is why we must continue to submit ourselves to God's word and not to our culture. And then fourthly, I don't know if you've seen this in the Gospels recently. I'd encourage you to read it back and look for every time Jesus asked the question of an individual, what do you want me to do for you? What what is it that you want me to do for you? You know, think about that question even right now for yourself. And imagine Jesus is standing and he's asking you that question. What do you want me to do? I think it's an incredible thing that in relationship with Jesus, that he even asks us this question. Oftentimes, the way that we answer that question, especially in belief formation or deconstruction, is where we arrive. 
You know, if we start with a particular bias as we read the scriptures and we say, well, this is what I want, Jesus. So, you know, and he says, well, what do you want? Well, I want to pull apart the Bible and make it not be the authority in my life anymore. And I don't want to believe that it's ultimately inspired. When you get to the end of it, that's where you're going to arrive. Like, I don't know if you find this kind of interesting, but set of facts and they can arrive at different conclusions. Now that maybe, you know, makes you go, well, what's that all about? We have to go back to the place of our own heart, of our own surrender, and saying, where, what am I wanting? What am I ultimately wanting? Am I wanting to surrender and submit myself completely to the word? And then where will that lead? Rather than, here's this thing that I kind of want, and I need the Bible to back this up for me. And so I believe that in that want for you. Uh, Some of us are familiar with uh, the Amish community. You maybe know about the Amish community that when an individual within the Amish community turns 16, they have the opportunity to leave the community and go and take all of the sort of pleasures of the world. They're told, you know, go and party, live it up. Did you know that 95 turn to the Amish community? Now, some of us are maybe sitting here going, why would you want to return to the Amish community? Like there's like electricity, like all these things. We think these things are amazing. Yet the reason that so many in the Amish community return is because of the pervading sense of community that Western culture lacks. And what they want to go back to is a formed community of people that are pursuing life together. I just personally believe that this is a powerful apologetic for belief and faith in Jesus and joining up with his community of us being committing to being a different culture, a different way, a different community than is what is being put on offer in this world and staying committed to it. And this is the invitation of Jesus. Will we say, yes, Jesus, this is what I want? Let's pray. And so Jesus, for the fact that we can just join in with people that have loved, who have trusted, and have followed you. We want to admit today our fragility God, our inabilities to really know exactly all the time what it is that we really want. And so, God, what we also need to do is look to those who love and care for us and say, hey, what do you think that I should want? God, would you help those of us struggling in our faith? God, we maybe feel like we are just way all together. God, would to the faith of those around us And Jesus, would we trust you? God, we thank you for everyone here and and everyone at home in the cafe. God, everyone that considers Church of the City, their church family, and also the wider church, your body here in Guelph. God, would we be healthy? Would we desire you? Would we surrender and submit ourselves ultimately to you? We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.